Hello, and welcome to the Faithful Forebearers. Episode 6, Cyril and Methodius. Welcome back. Last episode, I had thought that it might be a two-parter this time, but it looks like we'll be able to fit everything in one episode. It'll just be a little bit longer than normal. So this episode, we are going to look at two brothers who lived in the 800s AD. Now, last time we learned about John of Damascus and his work in Syria in the 700s up to his death in 749. And before that, we looked at Alcuin, who helped lead the Carolinian Renaissance. And Alcuin died in 804. But now we're going to look a couple generations ahead to a pair of missionaries, Cyril and Methodius. Now, these brothers will not have a close connection with the English missionaries or particularly with John of Damascus, but their work is going to be equally impressive. So first off, as always, we need to look at the world in which Cyril and Methodius were born. Now, it's been 150 years since John of Damascus, and it's been about 50 years since Alcuin. And in Europe, while there are many smaller kingdoms, there are two major players. Charlemagne's Carolinian Empire, now ruled by his sons, and the Byzantine Empire, around modern-day Greece and Turkey. But this is a dark time for the established kingdoms of Europe. From the north, there started to appear a strange new menace, the Vikings. And in the 800s especially, they were targeting the British Isles. Vikings from Denmark conquered much of the eastern part of the island, including Northumbria, where our old friend the Venerable Bede had lived. They also attacked unguarded monasteries up and down the coast of Ireland, and sometimes the Viking would even found towns on the islands from which to launch their future raids. Thousands of monks and civilians were killed in the invasion. From the southeast there came the threat of Islam, and Muslim armies had taken North Africa and Spain. In 846, a Muslim fleet sailed up the Tiber River and attacked Rome itself, desecrating the tombs of St. Peter and St. Paul. In the east, they were always pressuring the Byzantine Empire in the area of the Holy Land. Also from the northeast came the Magyars and the Bulgars, and many other new Slavic peoples that were pushing into the areas of modern-day Hungary and Bulgaria. All the powers of Europe were stretched beyond their limits, and almost to the breaking point. So this is the world into which Cyril and Methodius were born. They, however, had the luxury of being born in a fairly stable area of the world, northern Greece, in the city of Thessalonica. One of the reasons the area was stable was the Byzantine policy of allowing some Slavic peoples to settle in the country. This meant that Thessalonican culture was beginning to blend between the Byzantine Greeks and the Slavic peoples, because of this, no one is sure if Cyril and Methodius were fully Greek, or fully Slavic, or maybe both. Regardless, as we will see, they were totally fluent and comfortable with both cultures and languages, and that's something that will serve them well. Thessalonica at this time was a major city in the Byzantine Empire, and the brother's father, a man named Leo, was a government official there. He was supposedly rich and noble, and he and his wife bore seven children. Methodius was one of the older children, and Cyril, born with the actual name Constantine, was the youngest. But for simplicity's sake, I will simply call him Cyril all the way through. But just know that he won't officially get that name until soon before his death. 
Now, both brothers received excellent educations, and, as always, people could tell they were very clever. So, being bright and one of the older children in his family, Methodius became a government official like his father. Since he already was familiar with Slavic customs, he was given a Slavic area to govern, and apparently he did quite well there. Cyril, however, had a different path. According to Cyril's biography, when he was young, he had a dream in which his parents told him to pick any woman in the city to be his wife. The boy found the most beautiful woman, with the name Sophia, which in Greek means wisdom. When he woke, he told his parents about this dream, and they took this to mean he would be married to true wisdom. That is, he would become a priest. There's another story of Cyril's childhood, that he was out falconing with his favorite falcon. But one day, his falcon flew too high and was blown away by a strong wind. Cyril was heartbroken, and he wouldn't eat for two days. Finally, he decided that he would not put his heart into things of this world, which could be lost like his falcon. He said, Is this life such that sorrow takes the place of joy? From this day forth, I shall take a different path, a better one than this. But I shall not live out my days in the tumult of this life. While studying, Cyril quickly impressed all his teachers. Soon, the imperial court heard of this brilliant youth and invited him to study in the capital of the empire. Constantinople. Here Cyril was given the best education that the ninth century had to offer. The government official who invited him, a man named Theoctistus, was especially impressed with Cyril. At one point, Theoctistus even offered his goddaughter to Cyril for marriage. But Cyril declined, saying, This is indeed a great gift for those who have need of it, but for me, nothing is greater than learning. Cyril quickly became famous for his intellect and prowess, especially in theological debate. He gained such a reputation that he was given a special mission to a patriarch that had been expelled for his beliefs. The emperor of Constantinople was so confident in Cyril's abilities that he told the ex-patriarch, If you can prevail against this man, you will again receive your office. That's some pretty high praise. The patriarch was first insulted that the emperor would send some young upstart to him. So, when the patriarch saw Cyril arrive with his entourage, he said to Cyril, None of you are worthy of being my footstool, so why should I wish to dispute with you? To this, Cyril replied, If you really are a man of God, then you should listen to his words that say that all men are created from the same earth and spirit, and treat us with the same respect as anyone. Then the patriarch... I'm sure now a little defensive, said that he was at a disadvantage in the debate, because he was in his old age while Cyril was young. To which Cyril replied, You are directing accusations at yourself. Tell me, at which age is the soul stronger than the body? The patriarch replied, In old age. And Cyril said, Into which combat are we driving? Answer me, bodily or spiritual? Spiritual, he replied. And Cyril said, so, in fact, you have the advantage. The man was, in the end, shamed, and also impressed by Cyril's wit and mind. And, in the end, the old man was won over by Cyril. After success on his first mission, the emperor sent him on another one. This second mission was a much higher profile. Cyril was sent to the court of the Muslim Abbasid Caliph al-Mutawakil, his mission was to debate theology with the Muslim theologians and, if possible, improve relationships between the Caliphate and the Byzantine Empire. 
The full debate is chronicled in the biography of Cyril, and there are some great parts. At one point, the Arabs question Cyril and ask why Christians do not obey Jesus when he says, Pray for your enemies. Do good to them that smite you, and turn your other cheek. You are not like that, they said, but on the contrary, you Christians sharpen your weapons against those that treat you in such manner. They, of course, were speaking of the wars that took place between the Caliphate and the Byzantines. Cyril replied, If the law contains two commandments, who fulfills the law? The one who keeps one commandment, or the one who keeps both? They answered, Obviously, he who keeps both. Cyril then said, God says, Pray for them which disrespectfully use you. And he also said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. We do this for the sake of our friends, lest their souls be captured together with their bodies. Ultimately, Cyril's mission was not successful, but he did dazzle the caliph's court. Afterwards, he returned to Constantinople, where he hoped to retire for a while and study quietly. During this time, Cyril's older brother, Methodius, was working hard as a government official. He was given a similar rank to that of his father in either Bulgaria or near his home in Thessalonica. Whatever region he was in, he was in contact with the rural Slavic population on a regular basis. During this time, he became even more accustomed to the Slavic ways and traditions. His career was successful, and he was recognized as being an able administrator. But apparently his official government work was beginning to wear on him. After probably 15 to 20 years, while he was perhaps in his late 30s, he retired from public service to become a monk and left to live the monastic life. It was about this time that emissaries came to Constantinople from a far-off kingdom, the Khazar Empire. The Khazar Empire was a fairly large empire which is almost totally forgotten in the modern world. At this time it was a fairly new political force in the area, and its primary base of power was between and north of the Black and Caspian Seas. The nobility of this new empire were searching for a religion to unite the populace. At this time, the nobility was leaning towards converting to Judaism, or possibly Islam. The emperor of Constantinople, for political as well as religious reasons, did not want this to happen. So he dispatched Cyril, who now had a reputation of being one of the best missionaries and churchmen of his time. Cyril set out on his way with a group of priests, and they made their way to the city of Kherson, which is on the Crimea Peninsula. They stopped there, and here Cyril began to prepare in earnest for his mission. While there, he began to learn Hebrew, and would practice by translating portions of Scripture. It's likely that he wanted to learn Hebrew well, because he would be debating Jewish scholars while in the Khazar court. He also began practicing the Khazar language. Now it's interesting because we don't know what language this was or what it was like, because sadly there are no surviving documents. But whatever it was, Cyril learned it. He read books written in the Khazar language, and he met a native speaker in the town he was in, and would converse with him regularly to understand the language better. Being a quick learner, soon Cyril could speak it very well. Around this time, Cyril also had a dream of the location of the bones of St. Clement of Rome. There was a legend that St. Clement had died a martyr's death at the hands of the Crimeans hundreds of years before. So, he set out with a group to find the relics. 
Cyril did find some Christian relics, though modern scholars are unsure if it actually could have been Clement I of Rome. It is certain, however, that he, along with everyone at the time, believed he truly had found the bones of St. Clement. This gained Cyril a reputation in the Christian world, both in the East and in the West. After this time in Kherson, Cyril and his group continued on their way. When they arrived, they were welcomed at the court of the Kagan, that's the name of the ruler of the Khazars, and at this point most of the Khazars, including the Kagan, had converted to Judaism. At one feast, they wanted to know where to seat Cyril, and asked, What is your station, so that we may seat you according to your rank? Cyril said to them, I had a great and very renowned grandfather, who stood close to the emperor, but he voluntarily rejected the great honor granted to him, and was banished. He became impoverished after going to a foreign land, where he begot me. And though I have sought my grandfather's former station, I have not yet succeeded in obtaining it, for I am Adam's grandson. Cyril was speaking poetically about Adam's banishment from the Garden of Eden. The Khazars, now being Jews and familiar with the Old Testament, knew the story, and they were quite impressed with him, and so they began taking a liking to him. The Kagan then began to question Cyril, and he asked, Why do you worship the Trinity? We worship the God found in the Scriptures, by which he meant the Christian Old Testament. Cyril said, The Scriptures proclaim the Word and the Spirit. If someone renders honor to you, but not your Word and Spirit, and yet another will honor all three, which of the two renders greater honor? To which the Kagan replied, the one who honors all three. Cyril said then, We actually follow the scriptures more closely then, because Isaiah says, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am the first, I am forever, and now the Lord and his Spirit hath sent me. The Kagan, still not convinced, asked another question. He wanted to know how God could be contained in the womb of a woman. Cyril replied, Wouldn't it be crazy to think that the first officer in a government could not receive the Kagan, but one of the lowly slaves could? And the Kagan said, Of course, that would be ridiculous. Then Cyril asked, Which creature is the most honored of all the creatures? And the Kagan replied, Mankind is. Then Cyril stated, You have no problem thinking God can be contained by a burning bush or a whirlwind or a cloud. Here Cyril was citing some of the appearances of God in the Old Testament. Aren't those much less honored than humans? Why do you have such a problem with God being contained in a woman's womb, then? Cyril stayed for several more months debating all sorts of doctrines with the Khazars. They discussed the laws of Moses and Noah, circumcision and baptism, and the customs of Christians, Jews, and Muslims. Before Cyril left, he had baptized about 200 converts to Christianity, and the Kagan was still quite impressed with him. Before Cyril left to return, the Kagan asked what gifts he would receive. Cyril asked only that the Kagan give him all the Greek, that is, all the Byzantine, slaves that he had. The Kagan gave him 200 slaves, whom Cyril set free and brought back with him to their home. Cyril then returned to Constantinople once again. But it was not long before the emperor and his patriarch tapped Cyril for service one more time. This time it was to the northwest, to the region of Greater Moravia, which is present-day Chechia. 
The area had recently been unified by King Rostislav. He was able to do this in part because of the support of the Franks in the West. But likely he was beginning to grow tired of that power arrangement, and he was looking for other places for support. So he set his sights on Constantinople. Rostislav's fledging kingdom was nominally Christian, being reached by Western missionaries, but really with little success. So Rostislav, to strengthen ties and to keep his kingdom Christian, asked at the emperor of Constantinople for missionaries to help his nation. So Cyril began preparing for his next missionary journey, except this time he would not be alone. He would have the help of his brother, Methodius. Cyril was worried about this next mission. He wasn't sure how he would connect with the people of Monrovia, in large part because they did not have a written script for their language at all. So he and his brother decided it was best that they simply invent one. Thankfully, the Morovians spoke a type of Slavic, which Cyril and Methodius were already well acquainted with. Soon Cyril had written the Gospels in this new script for this language. The brothers departed Constantinople, again with an entourage and many gifts, the greatest of which was a new written language, so that they may be courted among the great nations that praise God in their own language, Cyril wrote. Rostislav received them generously when they arrived in Monrovia and gave them all they needed for their missionary work. One of the first things they did was write a liturgy for the Slavs in their own language. And while it might be surprising to us, this caused somewhat of a scandal in the area. You see, Cyril and Methodius were not the first missionaries here, and Western missionaries who'd come from Rome had already been in Monrovia for some time. And they were not crazy about these new guys from the East showing up. And it did not help that they were having much success, while the Western missionaries were not. So one of the things they opposed Cyril on was the translation of the worship into Slavic. They stated that God could only truly be worshipped in Hebrew, Greek, or Latin. They even stated that this logic was biblical, as these were the three languages that Pilate had written on the sign above Jesus during his crucifixion that stated, King of the Jews. This group became known as the Trilinguists, and they would be a serious thorn in Cyril and Methodius's sides. But at this moment, Cyril and Methodius's work was seeing wild success. The people were hearing the worship and seeing the scriptures in their own language. A neighboring nation, Pannonia, that spoke a similar language, even invited Cyril into their kingdom for a while. This prince, named Kosal, gave Cyril 50 students to learn the script. Cyril taught them all, and when Kosal tried to give him gifts as a reward, Cyril once again simply asked for captives, 900 this time. Kosal granted this to Cyril, and Cyril immediately set them all free. Cyril and Methodius then traveled to Venice. In Venice, there were many priests and bishops who were friends with the trilinguists back in Monrovia. So they began to grill Cyril and Methodius about their work. They asked them, why are you doing this when we all know there are only three worthy languages for praising God, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew? At this point, Cyril could no longer hold back. He berated them. He replied, Falls not father's reign upon all equally, and shines not the sun also upon all? And breathe we not all the air in the same way? Are ye not ashamed to mention only three tongues, and to command all other nations and tribes to be blind and deaf? Tell me, render ye God powerless, that he is incapable of granting this? 
or envious that he desires this not? For David cried out, saying, O praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise him, all ye people. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And then he really went after them, saying, And to you also is said, teachers of the law, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer you they that are entering. He then railed on them, quoting all sorts of biblical passages, and charging them with stopping the spread of the gospel and being enemies of Christ. By the end, most of his enemies were thoroughly cowed. While in Venice, the brothers were invited by the Pope, Hadrian II, to come to Rome. The two brothers, when they entered, were greeted by the whole city, and they were especially famous because they brought with them the bones of Clement. Remember, these were the bones found by Cyril on his mission to the Khazars. After the great entrance, the Pope had them both consecrated. The brothers then began to celebrate the Slavic liturgy in one of the Roman churches. This was especially sweet, because this was where those Roman missionaries had come from, who had fought so hard against the Slavic liturgy. The two brothers, especially Cyril, became quite popular, and soon many scholars and churchmen in the city would come and discuss theology and religion and mission work with them. After several months in Rome, Cyril started to become sick. He had always been weak in his life, and now his travels were catching up with him. Cyril knew that he was near the end of his life, and it was now that he officially took the name Cyril. Changing names was a common custom at the time when one entered a monastery. Cyril joined a Roman monastery, and there he began to prepare for his death. On his deathbed, he asked his brother to continue the mission that they had started and to spread the gospel to the Slavic peoples. Cyril died on February 14, 862. He was only 42 years old. Soon after Cyril's death, Pope Hadrian received a message from Kosal, the prince of Pannonia, who had received the brothers two years earlier. He asked that they return to continue his people's education. So the Pope sent Methodius forth, who he ordained a bishop. Methodius returned with the blessing of both Rome and Constantinople to evangelize to the Moravians and Pannonians. This is somewhat unique because 200 years later, both Rome and Constantinople will want nothing to do with each other. But that is yet to come. When Methodius arrived in Moravia, he began to meet resistance in this once fertile mission field. The problem, sadly, was other bishops and priests who came from the Franks to the West. These priests did not take well to a bishop who originated out of the East. When Methodius reached the royal court, the bishops told him that he needed to leave because he did not have jurisdiction to be there. Of course, Methodius absolutely did have jurisdiction to be there, as now both the Pope and the Patriarch of Constantinople wanted him there. But regardless, he was kicked out of the court and banished to a nearby kingdom. When news of what had happened to his newly minted bishop reached the Pope, he was furious. He immediately excommunicated all of the bishops until they let Methodius return. The Moravian king, seeing all the trouble that these Frankish bishops caused, kicked them out and let Methodius return. For the next several years, Methodius's work went very well. Both the kingdom and the church of the Moravians grew and prospered. But under the influence of some western bishops, there began to be problems. First, some of Methodius's enemies began to forge letters from the pope saying that Methodius was to be expelled 
But soon, a genuine letter came from the Pope, stating that Methodius still had his full blessing. So then his enemies tried forging a letter from the Byzantine Empire. The Emperor, now Basil I, was not at all upset with Methodius, but seeing all the trouble he was facing recalled him back to Constantinople anyways. Emperor Basil and his patriarch, Photius, were eager to hear how the Pannonian and Moravian missions were going. Also, the mutual respect that both Rome and Constantinople shared for Methodius helped relations between the two. Honoring Methodius, who was now a papal official, was also honoring the Pope. Methodius was given a royal homecoming, to where he had started his career so many years before. After reporting all that he had done, Methodius secluded himself with two close friends, who were both excellent scribes, and translated the entire Bible from Greek to Slavonic, the script that he and his brother had invented. It took them six months. But by now Methodius was an old man, but he was called on one more mission. Charles the Fat, the Frankish ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, wanted to meet Methodius face to face. He was meeting with a Moravian king to work out a treaty. Some Byzantines feared that Charles would capture and kill or torture Methodius, since he had been enemies to so many Frankish clergymen. But Methodius went in spite of these rumors, and the rumors turned out to be totally unfounded. Charles honored Methodius and gave him gifts and asked Methodius to always remember him in his prayers. After his last adventure, Methodius named one of his disciples, a man named Gorazd, as his successor. Methodius said of him, He is a free countryman of Moravia, who is orthodox and well-versed in Latin letters. May this be God's will, and your desire as it is mine. It was a good choice, as it pleased both Rome, Constantinople, and the Moravians. Afterwards, Methodius himself died on April 6th, 885, 23 years after his brother. The two brothers had traveled thousands of miles in their careers, and together had been in the courts of almost every major power in the Western world of their time. They had preached the gospel to Arabs in the south, Khazars in the east, Slavs to the north and to the west. They had written a script for a culture that had none, and their script would be foundational for Slavic cultures for millennia to come and the letters that they used are the same letters that are used in the Russian alphabet, which today are named in Cyril's honor, as they're still known as the Cyrillic alphabet. Not only were the brothers able to do all this, but they were able to do most of it with the blessing of both Rome and Constantinople, who soon would be bitter rivals instead of allies. The effect of Cyril and Methodius on the world and on the church is hard to fathom, but it's too bad that almost no one knows about these faithful brothers. Well, that's all I have for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to jump ahead a little bit, into the 11th century, that's the 1000s, and head back to Western Europe. This time we won't be talking about a missionary either, but about a church leader and a scholar, Anselm of Canterbury. Remember, if you have questions or comments, you can contact me by going to faithfulforebears.com in the contact page, or email me at clericclawson at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate me on iTunes or Stitcher, and tell a friend. I'm Eric Clawson. See you next time.